Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. Hello, I'm Marina Yevshan, co-host of the Russia-Ukraine War Report podcast, and today is February the 26th, 2024. It has been 3,682 days since Russia started covert military operations in Crimea, 10 years and 6 days since the start of the Russia-Ukraine war, and 2 years and 3 days since Russia expanded its war of aggression. Today's podcast looks at events that happened over the weekend. During the podcast, you will find the Russia-Ukraine war map helpful to visualize the areas discussed. A link is in the podcast description. There are map updates today. The Russia-Ukraine war report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from our direct contacts and journalists in Ukraine, the Russian Ministry of Defense, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine Morning Reports, Operational Commands North, South and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geospatial experts, and pro-Ukrainian pro-Russian male bloggers and social media channels with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission – the truth. Because the truth matters. Let's start with the daily assessment. 1. We maintain there is a high risk of a large-scale missile attack targeting civilians and civilian infrastructure through March the 1st, due to a Russian A-50U AWACS being shot down on February the 23rd. 2. We maintain the risk that Russia will recognize the breakaway Moldovan Republic of Transnistria or declare it intends to annex the region is low. 3. The United States has ended financial and military aid to Ukraine unless there is an unforeseen event that changes congressional leadership before the 2024 elections. 4. Ukraine's acute shortage of ammunition and air defense missiles continues to impact the battlefield, with Kyiv and Washington warning that situation will become catastrophic by April. 5. In our assessment and due to necessity, Ukraine has shifted to a Fabian strategy to wear down Russian combat power while conserving resources. 6. The ending of U.S. aid for Ukraine is motivating at least five European nations to consider expanding, restarting or starting nuclear weapons programs. 7. It is extremely unlikely that Russia will achieve its main operational goal of capturing the remaining areas of the Luhansk and Donetsk oblasts and the areas east of the Oskil River in northern Kharkiv oblast by March 13. 8. Our assessment that the lack of media attention and the ending of U.S. military aid has encouraged the Kremlin to be more transparent when committing grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions was regrettably accurate. 9. We maintain that while the possibility of an intentional nuclear accident caused by Russian occupiers at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains low, the condition is more serious than what the International Atomic Energy Agency is reporting. Hi, my name is David Obelt. I'm the Chief Content Officer for Malcontent News. Thank you for letting me jump in at the start of the podcast. The two-year mark of Russia's expanded war of aggression against Ukraine happened on February 24th, which is a Saturday when we don't do podcasts. 
I wanted to let you know that we are providing all of our listeners a gift of sorts today. In the podcast description, there is a link to a special situation report that we released on February 24th that provides a summary of everything that's happened in the last two years. And it also provides everything that would normally be in one of our situation reports. It's 132 pages long, and it is our gift to you. If you want to download your own copy, there is a link in the podcast description, or you can search on Patreon for the malcontent. No registration required, no credit card required, no information required. It is our gift to you for supporting us for almost two years of war coverage. We wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for you. And with that, let me hand the podcast back over to Manina. We begin today's war report in the Kupiansk area of operation, or AO, of Kharkiv Oblast. The Russian Ministry of Defense, Armored, reported positional fighting west of Sinkivka, near the railroad tracks south of Leman Pershe. This is in an area where we have the line of conflict mapped. The director of the main defense intelligence directorate of the Ministry of Defense of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, that's the HUR, Kirillo Budanov, believes the situation is stable, and the negative predictions about Kupiansk are from, quote, all those experts who, not understanding the situation, talk a lot. Unquote. The General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, reported renewed fighting in the area of Tabaevka, with Russian forces launching five unsuccessful attacks. The Kharkiv Oblast Administrative and Military Governor, referenced as OVA, Oleksiy Nehubov reported that Kharkiv had been hit by multiple S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack fired from Belgorod. At the time of recording, there wasn't any other information. Moving to assessment. If you remember, our team had dismissed previous claims that Russia would launch a massive offensive in the Kupiansk AO between January the 15th and the 20th as well as predicted large-scale offensive in October 2023. In this respect, we agree with the head of the HUR, Budanov. In the Kremenaya of Luhansk oblast, Russian forces continued their attacks east and northeast of Terny without success. Let's talk about the Donbass, starting in northeast Donetsk oblast. Russian forces advanced in the Bakhmut AO while committing grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions. Northeast of Ivanivske from Khromov and Bakhmut, Russian forces made significant advances, almost reaching the top of the first ridge north of the settlement. Nine Ukrainian soldiers were captured, and Russian forces executed at least seven. I'll cover this in more depth in a future podcast. In the Klishivka AO, positional fighting was ongoing northwest and east of Klishivka, with no change in the situation. Russian sources reported there was fighting in the area of Andreevka. In our assessment, this is southeast of the village due to significant shadow of activity near Kurdyumevka. Russia attacked Kostantinevka using S-300 anti-aircraft missiles for a ground attack and Fab-250 UMPK glide bombs. The railroad station was destroyed, and 15 apartment buildings, 3 homes, 23 retail shops east of the train station, 3 schools, 2 city administrative buildings, 2 pharmacies, and the Feast of Igor Russian Orthodox Church were damaged. 
one pensioner was wounded. In the Turetsk, New York area, armored reported fighting in the area of Pivnichne and Shumy on the edge of occupied Horlivka. GSEFU reported that Ukrainian forces were shelled in the area of Mayorsk and Shumy, suggesting that fighting is still ongoing in the area of Terrakens along the former Minsk II boundary. Here is the situation in southwest Donetsk, starting in the Avdiivka AO, where Ukrainian forces have not been able to stabilize defensive lines. To the north of occupied Avdiivka, Armod reported fighting near Novobakhmutivka. Ukrainian sources reported that Russian troops briefly broke through Ukrainian defenses east of Berdychy, but were repulsed. And heavy fighting continued near the railroad grade east of Stepove. Further south, Ukrainian forces are under heavy pressure in Orlivka, with Russian forces trying to advance along the road from Avdiivka. On February 24, Russian forces captured the eastern part of the village of Lastochkeme. Ukrainian forces were forced to fall back to Tonenke due to a lack of effective defensive positions. There are conflicting reports on the status of Lastochkeme. Russian mercenary blogger Wogonzo reported that Ukrainian forces were on the offensive on the western edge of Lastochkeme. In contrast, the Ukrainian source Deep State wrote, quote, We once again heard withdrew to prepared positions. And then we will hear more and more, because the situation in the neighboring villages is absolutely the same, and the enemy has to be restrained by the forces of the Ukrainian military, on whose shoulders the entire burden falls. Unquote. Using terrain analysis, we adjusted the map, moving the line of conflict west of the village. You can see our war map to visualize the situation. There is a link in the podcast description. Southwest of occupied Avdiivka, fighting continued in the eastern part of Parvomaiske and near Nevelske, with no change in the situation. Moving to assessment. Considering the terrain and uncooperative weather that is benefiting Russia, if Russian forces can take Tonenka and Orlivka, the next advance would either be north toward Semenivka or continue west toward Umanska. If Russian commanders continue a strategy of advancing regardless of losses, a direct attack toward western Vodyane and Netailove can't be ruled out. If Ukraine continues a Fabian strategy, that is, refusing to engage in frontal battles and fighting an attritional war that preserves resources, the next effective defense line runs from Mezhove to Yasnobrodivka to Karlivka. Elevation, water obstacles, and urbanized areas will assist the defense. In the Marienka area, Russian forces continue to attack Krasnogorivka from the south, with support from the aerospace forces. GSFU reported fighting near Georgievka, suggesting that Russian troops did have a brief operational pause. Russian and Ukrainian forces also continue to fight for control of the village of Pobeda. In the Vogledario, heavy fighting continued, with Russian forces trying to advance on Novomikhailivka from the northeast without success. To the west, in the Staromlinivka area, Russian forces continued to try to advance in the direction of Zolotaniva from Novodonetske, with no change in the situation. Fighting continued in Zaporizhia oblast. And there continues to be no indication Russia is setting conditions for a larger offensive. In the Hulepola area, GSFU reported fighting within the region, which could be anywhere from Myrna to Marfopil. 
in the Rihivio, intense fighting erupted south of Robotene, with Russian forces breaking through Ukrainian defenses and temporarily advancing into the settlement. Three Russian armored personnel carriers attempted to enter Robotene, with two destroyed and the third releasing their dismounts. Defended by only four Ukrainian soldiers, the assault was stopped. The third APC was destroyed as the surviving Russian forces retreated. We'll link to both videos in our situation report, and there is more information in the podcast description. The International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, provided an update on the status of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Director General Rafael Grossi reported that the IAEA inspectors heard, quote, explosions every day over the past week, including one late last Friday that appeared to occur close to the plant itself, unquote. They also reported several loud explosions on February the 22nd, with one very close to the site. Russian occupiers reported that the blast was part of nearby, quote, failed training. The IAEA confirmed that there was no shelling at the plant, damage or casualties. Additionally, a landmine exploded outside the plant perimeter. There was no damage or injuries reported. Speaking about the incidents, Grosse said, quote, I remain deeply concerned about the nuclear safety and security situation at Europe's largest nuclear power plant, located in the front line of the war. The reports of our experts indicate possible combat action not far away from the site. Once again, I call on all parties to strictly observe the five concrete principles for the protection of the plant and avoid any attack or military activity that could threaten nuclear safety and security there. Unquote. The 330 kV or kV backup power line remains disconnected for the sixth day with no estimate on when it will be repaired. Russian attacks on Dnipropetrovsk region damaged the power lines. Inspectors observed that parts had arrived to repair a second 750 kV line, but no plans were in place to start the work. For the first time, IAEA inspectors were permitted to walk through the six main control rooms. Staffing shortages remain acute. There was no information about known water, boron and oil leaks in the cooling and safety circuits of reactors 1, 4, 5 and 6. There has been no progress on being able to inspect the roofs of reactors 1, 5 and 6, nor permission to walk through all turbine holes in sequence. In the Khersonio, fighting continued in Krynke, with the Ukrainian forces repelling more than 15 attacks over the weekend. On February the 21st, I told you about how Russian marines left two Russian flags in the west-central part of Krynke and ran for their lives. They succeeded in providing Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shaigu his picture report, but a video we link to in our situation report shows they didn't make it out alive. Over the weekend, Ukrainian forces replaced their flag on the water tower in the forest south of the settlement. A Russian drone operator tried to hang a replacement flag, but lost the drone and the flag in the process. Yes, we link to that video too. In defiance of last week's claims by Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shaigu that the village was captured, Ukrainian forces captured Russian naval infantry soldiers. 
the border situation with Poland continues to deteriorate with no diplomatic solution in sight. Russian-backed protests have entered a sixth day. Polish farmers reblocked the Usteluch-Zosen checkpoint after Prime Minister Donald Tusk vowed it would be kept open for civilians and humanitarian and military aid. In the village of Kotomes, 160 metric tons of corn in 10 rail cars were dumped by unknown parties. Members of the pro-Russian Confederate Party shared the video of the vandalism, which quickly spread on Russian social media. The Minister of Infrastructure of Ukraine, Oleksandr Kubrakov, condemned the damage. Quote, this is the fourth case of vandalism at Polish railway stations the fourth case of impunity and irresponsibility. At the Ravaruska Hrebenna checkpoint, Russian-backed protesters covered the roadway with nails and screws, flattening the tires of vehicles trying to move through the checkpoint. The Secretary of the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine, Oleksiy Denilov, accused Russia of being behind a massive disinformation campaign. Quote, if the world community does not solve these challenges and does not provide answers, we can expect an extremely difficult situation. Speaking at the Ukraine Year 2024 forum, President Volodymyr Zelensky was asked about the ongoing protests. Quote, I believe that this situation should be resolved very quickly. To spill Ukrainian grain for the fourth time, there are enough opportunities to stop it, would there be a desire? Unquote. The Ukrainian leader added that the relationship with Poland was important, but, quote, if steps are not taken to solve the problem with Poland, we will protect our business. President of Poland Andrzej Duda was conspicuously absent from Ukrainian diplomatic ceremonies acknowledging the second anniversary of Russia expanding its war of aggression. Neither nation would provide a clear answer on why Duda did not attend. I've got an update on some big news out of Russia from over the weekend. A Russian A-50U AWACS was shot down near the village of Trudova, Armenia, in the Krasnodar Krai region of Russia. This is the second A-50 lost in 2024, leaving the VKS with seven operational airframes. The airframe has been identified as number 42 RF-50-610. The plane entered service in 1988 and was upgraded in 2019. The HUR said an S-200 air defense missile shot down the aircraft. Russian manblogger fighter bomber initially reported that Ukraine shot down the A-50, before being told by the Kremlin, sorry, before deciding that Russian incompetence was a better story, claiming that the plane was destroyed by friendly fire. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Here is my theatre-wide update. On February 24 and 25, Ukraine shot down 25 of 32 Iranian-sourced Shahed-136 one-way drones, 
and three KH-59 guided air-to-surface missiles launched in two waves. An additional Iskander M short-range ballistic missile, that's an SRBM, fired from occupied Crimea, reached its unspecified target. We have not covered Russian 5 o'clock follies in a long time, but this is a good one. After two years of its expanded war of aggression, Armut claimed that it had destroyed 841 Ukrainian aircraft, 474 planes and 267 helicopters. On February 24, 2022, Ukraine's entire operational fleet was less than 250 aircraft, and the nation has received less than 100 additional planes and helicopters combined in the last year. Russian claims are distorted because soldiers and commanders are paid bounties for destroyed equipment, motivating units to abuse the system. The director of the Hur Budanov said that Russia had planned but could not implement its most ambitious hybrid warfare operation in history, codenamed Maidan 3. The operation was supposed to question the legitimacy of the Kyiv and Ukrainian military leaders in the spring of 2023 and then launch a new offensive in eastern Ukraine. The Russian offensive operations met stiff resistance and failed, causing the information warfare plan that started in May to fall apart. The SBU detained two groups of teens in Chernihiv and Kyiv Oblast, who were preparing to launch drones at Ukraine's Patriot batteries in an apparent act of treason. SBU director Major General Vasil Maluk said the attack was being carried out on behalf of the Federal Security Service of Russia, or FSB, and the teens had gone through four months of training in drone operation. At the Ukraine Year 2024 forum in Kyiv, President Zelensky and other government officials answered questions over a wide range of topics. Zelensky said that the ratio of forces was now 1 to 7, and to restore the 1991 borders, it must be much closer to one-to-one. He claimed that 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers had died in the last two years, and that the number of Russians killed, reported by GSEFU, was 180,000, less than half the number from earlier reports. Zelensky said up to 500,000 Russian soldiers had been wounded, but would not discuss the Ukrainian number. He did clarify that the Ukrainian killed-in-action number did not include those missing in action and acknowledged that most of them are likely dead. As for the year ahead, President Zelensky said that it depends on Western partners and if there will be more weapons. Quote, this whole year is about the courage of people. All the years of courage. The first year was survival. It was a terrible year. The second was a year of stability in all directions. The boys are on the battlefield and the West is united. The third year is a turning point, and that's why we need both courage and stability to survive. The format of the war will depend on this year." Unquote. While praising the armed forces, he acknowledged the month ahead will be tough and believes that Russia is preparing a summer offensive. He added that March and April will be particularly difficult. Zelensky was also forthcoming in admitting mistakes made in 2023, stating, quote, The reserves were not prepared properly. We have to admit our weak points. Unquote. He also said there were breaches in operational security.
Quote, Our plans for a counteroffensive last fall were on the Kremlin's table before the counteroffensive began. Discussing foreign support, Zelensky said that only 50% of military aid promised to arrive in 2023 had been supplied. For ammunition, the situation was worse, with only 30% of commitments from the European Union delivered on time. When asked about the situation with U.S. military aid, Zelensky said, quote, We are relying on Congress. I hope the decision will be positive. If not, I don't really understand what the world we live in is turning into. They know we need their support within a month. That's what we've asked for. Very specific decisions are being made concerning the funding. We've insisted on this specificity because we are aware of the challenges the U.S. faces. But I am counting on the U.S. remaining the democratic leader of the world. Unquote. Finally, the Ukrainian leader confirmed that Russia had purchased SRBMs from North Korea, but, quote, nothing can be done about it. Director of the Hur Budanov added that the number of missiles provided was limited and dismissed claims that Russia had bought SRBMs from Iran. Military analyst Oleksandr Kovalenko reported that if Ukraine receives another 170,000 artillery rounds from the EU in March, it will be enough to support four weeks of warfare. We updated the table of equipment losses on February 23, 2024, using information from the Oryx database. Our table includes losses from the Prigozhin insurrection of June 23-24 of 2023 and the A-50U shot down on February 23, 2024. It's available as a free perk for listening to today's podcast. There is more information in the podcast description. Last stop. In the land of Mobix, mobilization and Mir, it has been very hard to be a Russian military officer the last two years. In the two years since Russia expanded its war of aggression, the Russian officers killed in Ukraine project has documented the loss of 3,627 officers. Rokop uses official releases from the Russian Ministry of Defense, obituaries, public funeral records, and memorials to compile their list. It excludes officers from the so-called Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics, Chechens, or commanders of private military companies. Not all officer deaths are documented, so the actual number is higher. In the last two years, Russia has lost five officers a day. Moving to assessment. The number of junior and field-grade officers lost is 2,825, devastating for the Russian military. And this doesn't take into account officers who were wounded in action and can no longer serve. It will take decades to restore the senior officer pipeline. Russia's command structure has contributed heavily to the loss of senior officers. The Russian Federation Armed Forces does not have a non-commissioned officer's corps and has a top-down command structure. Individual soldiers, junior officers and field officers are not only discouraged from adapting and improvising, they are frequently punished for it. When orders are not carried out due to confusion or non-compliance, senior officers are forced to go to the front, sometimes to the forwardmost line of friendly troops. 
in Western militaries, having a colonel personally directing troops 500 meters from the enemy is unsinkable. When Russia's battalion tactical group organization failed in Ukraine, instead of learning from their mistakes, the Kremlin dismantled a decade of work. It returned to a post-Soviet structure of regiments and divisions without addressing its command structure. While clinging to a mid-20th-century organizational structure gets results that the Kremlin is willing to accept, it is destroying the officer corps. In future conflicts, this will increasingly put Russia at a disadvantage that its accelerating demographic crisis will make worse. And that's what we know. Your support of my home, Ukraine, helps us make history and protect the future for all. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers and analysts is funded by readers, listeners and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News.